first Bible reading is from Mark 1, verse 35 to 39. Please uh, grab your Bibles and look up Mark 1, verse 35 to 39. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you, Jesus replied. Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. And the second reading is from 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 to 27. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 to verse 27. Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Well, good morning, good afternoon. Good evening to you whenever it is you might be tuning into this. My name is Nathan, one of the ministers here at St. Matt's Manly, and it's great to be together again for another week, isn't it? This week marks the beginning of the HSC. Fun times indeed. Stu, our youth minister, has actually put together a prayer roster of when all of our Year 12 was going to be sitting their exams and on what days. So if you'd like to support them by praying, that'd actually be the perfect way to do it. Let us know if you want a copy by filling out an online connection card or else there should be a stack in the building that you can grab on the way out. Now, I remember going through the HSC myself. It wasn't that long ago. And as a way to relieve stress, I actually taught myself how to juggle. I didn't have a clue beforehand, but by the end of the exams, I'd spend so much time procrastinating, sorry, I mean practicing, that I was actually pretty good. Like we're not talking clown level good, more kind of just party trick level. And it actually got to the point where I could juggle without even thinking about it. Who'd have guessed that the HSC would transform me into a juggler? Now imagine if transformation in the Christian life came as easily as that. It just never seems to feel that easy though, does it? And why is that? What can we do about it? Last week, we started this series, What Are You Doing? And this question of transformation is, 
is at the very center. How do we change? How, how can we grow deeper in our discipleship to Jesus? What's the secret to lasting transformation? Have you ever asked any of those questions before? You know, the longing for transformation is not just a Christian thing. It's a human thing, isn't it? And particularly here in Manly, the hunger for, for transformation is, is thick in the air that we breathe, isn't it? Gyms on every corner or the fitness classes spread along the beachfront, each of them offering to transform your physique. Or that smorgasbord of boutique fashion stores that line the corso, promising to transform your look for the coming season. Or that endless supply of different variations of organic vegan poke bowls that are guaranteed to transform your gut health. Transformation is a human thing. We want to look better. We want to feel better. And that quest to be better is a value that's deeply embedded in our cultural psyche. But it's also a deeply Christian idea as well. Like I know we all know this, right? But being a Christian is not just about praying a prayer once, asking for God's forgiveness and then just getting on with the rest of your life. It's not actually your life anymore, is it? Because to become a Christian is to actually give your life to God, to call him your Lord and Saviour and King. And the moment we do that is the moment that we set out on a journey that will take the rest of our lives, a journey into an ever-deepening relationship with him that never stops transforming us into someone new. Last week, Bruce laid out for us a definition of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We're going to keep coming back to this throughout the series. To be his follower is to be with Jesus. It's to be like Jesus. And it's to be for Jesus's mission. Being with him, being like him and being for him. And the expectation of the writers of the New Testament is that over the course of the Christian life, those things will actually grow, that we will be drawing nearer, that we will be looking more alike, and that we will be more engaging in his mission here on earth, more and more. Let me ask, is that your experience? Is your discipleship to Jesus deepening, or has it kind of become stuck in the shallows? What's it going to take to change that? See, one of the hard truths we'll be considering together in this series is confronting the reality that in many ways we are being more discipled by our world than we are by Jesus. That we are being transformed more into the image of our culture than into the image of our saviour. And it's most likely happening without us even realising it. Bruce touched on this last week, but there are three kind of major factors at play. Um, They're the stories that we hear, the company that we keep, and the habits that we develop. Our truth, our relationships, and our actions. And all three of these things are at work all of the time, right? They're shaping us into who we are becoming. And the world, our culture, has its own particular take on each of these things. 
which means just by living in the world, our exposure to its truth, to its community and to its habits, if we're not careful, these things actually start to disciple us. And it happens so subtly, we might not even notice until suddenly one day, perhaps like this commitment series, we stop, we take stock of where, we, where we're at and we realize that we look and think and act not like Jesus, but just like everyone else, disciples of the world. Sounds kind of ominous, right? But the answer's actually pretty simple. We have to wake up to where we're at. As Bruce said last week, we have to be honest. Wake up, see the impact that the world's been having on our hearts. We need to pray and ask that the Spirit might move in us. And then we've got to set ourselves to the task of countering discipleship to the world. So that means letting the truth of the gospel drown out whatever truth the world is trying to peddle this week. It's letting the life of this community, church, right, brothers and sisters in Christ, letting that become your bedrock community. And then it's about turning our attention to practice, to the things that we do, to take all of those unintentional habits we might have allowed the world to foster in us and to slowly and steadily replace each one with new, intentional, spirit-soaked rhythms of life. Over the next five weeks, we're going to be going on a bit of a walking tour through some of these patterns and practices. Things like silence and solitude, like Sabbath, like fasting, gratitude, hospitality, simplicity. All of these things that we can be doing as part of our daily or weekly or monthly routines. Now, some of them are they're quite similar, others are quite different, but all of them are intentional and they all share one and the same purpose. Giving us space to keep company with Jesus. I suspect that for many, if not for most, it's actually juggling that lies at the heart of shallow discipleship. What do I mean by that? Well, we all juggle. I'm not talking about these. I'm talking about life, about responsibilities, our priorities, the expectations of others, the big tasks and the little tasks our physical health, our mental health, our jobs, our families, and then all the relationships that we're just trying to maintain. Now, I don't know how many balls that is, but it's a lot. And one of the principles of juggling is that the more balls you're keeping in the air, the faster you've got to move them. I mean, you've only got two hands, right? So it is with life. The more things we juggle, the faster life gets. Here's the problem. To pull off the juggle, each ball can only be held for a micro moment. You see that? Before it's thrown back up and replaced by another. All the balls are moving, but I'm not holding on to any one of them for very long, right? 
And guess what? One of these balls is our relationship with God, our discipleship to Jesus. We wonder why it's shallow. Well, perhaps it's because we're only ever grasping for a moment at a time. What the spiritual practices do, each one of them, whatever it is, the practices prompt us to grab hold of the ball for longer, to grasp hold of our relationship with God. You see, we need the space to hold on to the ball, to let it rest in our palm, to enjoy how it feels, to appreciate its weight. That's what spiritual disciplines, godly habits, the practices, that's what they do. They push pause on the juggle, even if it's just for a moment, and they allow us to hold the ball, to linger on it a little longer. You know, even Jesus used spiritual practices to hold the ball. So our reading for today from the start of Mark's gospel, if you want to turn to it now, that'd be good. It shows Jesus getting up early one morning and going to share some silence and solitude and prayer with his father. Now, Mark actually mentions two other occasions when Jesus withdraws for prayer. He might have done it more than that, but we know of at least three occasions. There's this one, there's one following the feeding of the 5,000, and then one right before on the night that he was to be crucified. What's fascinating to realize is that on each occasion, Jesus withdraws at a moment when his mission is threatened. So at the start of Mark, if you read just a few verses prior to that, you'll see that it's the crowds that are wanting to be healed. And so the night before in Capernaum, the entire town turns up to his doorstep looking to be healed. The very next morning, he withdraws to pray. When he returns, his resolve is firm. What does he say? Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Now, in John's account of feeding the 5,000, straight afterwards, the people actually want to forcibly make Jesus king. Instead, he withdraws to pray. You see, his time to be king would come, but it was not yet. And then, of course, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus is so overcome by anguish at the thought of what's about to happen. What does he do? He withdraws to pray because this is precisely why he had come. You see, even Jesus needed space to keep company with his father, to draw near to him, to be restored and renewed by him and to recalibrate. You know, if, if Jesus needed the practices and that space, how much more do we? And so that's what this series is on spiritual practices. It's called, What Are You Doing? Now, inevitably, whenever we start focusing on doing stuff in the Christian life, it's likely that you'll hear two sounds, a bell and a groan. Ding! That sounds heretical and ugh, that sounds hard. Let me just touch on both these reactions. Firstly, that sounds heretical. How does doing stuff, habits, practices, disciplines, how, how do they fit into a faith that's meant to be all about God's grace rather than 
my performance. All about what he has done for us, not what we've done for him. You know, what are we to make of Paul's amazing words in Ephesians 2? For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Not by works, so that no one can boast. I mean, that's pretty clear, right? And that idea is absolutely fundamental to the Christian faith. God is the one who saves us. We cannot save ourselves. No amount of works will be able to do that. And it would seem like there's no room at all in there for works, for the things that we do. Well, Paul disagrees, actually. The place for works is actually in the very next verse. For we are God's handiwork, he says, created in, God, in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Isn't that crazy? Immediately following what's probably the best grace alone verse you can find in the whole Bible, Paul talks about works. You see, they have a place. They don't earn us credit towards salvation. They're the aftermath of having been saved. And in actual fact, you can see there, good works are what we've been saved for. Can you see that? Saved by God's grace, that we might start living the life he created us to live. Now you're going to hear a quote a lot through this series because Bruce loves it. And it's a good quote when it comes to the practices. Dallas Willard famously said this line, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. I think we make a mistake when we reduce all human existence down to, to salvation, the moment of salvation, right? As if that's the only reason we are here to be saved, as if that's the only thing that's important. Now, don't get me wrong, it certainly is important. It's desperately important. But those who turn to Jesus in repentance and faith are not just saved from something. We're saved to something, to a new way of being and a new way of life and a new relationship with God. It is certainly the case that our growth will only come about by the work of the Spirit within us. But it's also generally the case that the Spirit will only work to grow us in the space that we make for Him. It may well be possible to live the Christian life without barely raising a sweat. But to do so is to consign yourself to a relationship that lacks life and a discipleship that lacks depth. What a terribly tragic and shallow waste of an opportunity that would be. We need to have a go. Because grace is not opposed to earning. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Deeper discipleship, being with Jesus, like Jesus, for Jesus, it will take effort, plenty of effort. And so then, of course, we hear the groan. Ugh, this sounds hard. It's like, yep, <laughs> it is. It will be. 
just like everything else. Because change is hard, it takes time, and it takes effort, which I take it is exactly why Paul chooses to use the concept of training in places like 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 4. Training fits this process perfectly. I mean, just have a quick think about what happens to your body when it's left unchecked and sedentary and we sit zooming on a screen all day and we've just discovered Uber Eats and Deliveroo. Surely you remember the lockdown, right? (laughs) That thing that happened a few months ago. My gym closed down and I hate to jog and I like food that doesn't like me. As the weeks roll by, I watch myself become sluggish and soft and slow. Well, you know, the Christian life, our relationship with God, it requires our participation. We need to be training. When we leave it on the bench, when we let it sleep in instead of getting it up and working it out, then just like our bodies, our faith, our relationship with God becomes soft and sluggish and slow. You know, it's no longer fighting fit to use Paul's image in 1 Corinthians 9. And we wonder why following God feels like we're just beating the air aimlessly. (laughs) Hear me carefully here. Paul's not saying that we need to be perfect, that we need to nail it every time. He's simply saying we need to be those who are aiming for deeper discipleship people who want to grow in their Christ-likeness and who are willing to be a part of making that happen, who are willing to get moving, even if it's messy. And it will be messy. It's worth saying that, especially as we start this journey together for the next five weeks. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to drop the ball. We're going to get frustrated at our lack of progress. Guess what? (laughs) All those are features of training. And that's okay. It'll take time. It's important we know that. I mean, these days, we are so obsessed with getting things done as quickly and efficiently as possible, aren't we? And the phones in our pocket download apps in an instant. And then those apps that we download are specifically designed to help us do more stuff quicker. But as John Mark Comer puts it, is a pastor from Portland, Oregon. There is no killer app for the Christian life. You cannot microwave Christian character. I love that. And so as we go on this journey together, if, if we're going to do it well, don't expect it's going to be easy. Don't expect it's going to be quick. But by the power of the Spirit within us, you should expect it to be worth the effort. I want to leave us with a thought that's probably the most important part about the practices. And it's easy to lose sight of if we're not careful. Back when I was doing the HSC, you know, I didn't take up juggling because I wanted to be a juggler. Like, the aim wasn't juggling itself. It was the impact that the practice had on me to, to clear my mind, to calm my worry, I wasn't doing it for the party trick so I could impress people 
or so I could use it as a sermon illustration 15 years later. I didn't do it for the juggling. I did it for something else. And you know, it's the same with spiritual practices. We, we don't do them for the show. We don't do them to gain favor with God or to impress others. We don't do them out of guilt or fear. We do them out of love because we love God. We love him because of who he is and what he's done. And he loves us. His love for you is fierce. It, it led him to give up his life for you so that you could keep company with him. Friends, that's what the practices offer us. They are not masters, they're servants. And they serve us by carving out space for us to keep company with our Savior. They're not just behavioral, they are relational. And so while what are you doing is a perfect name for our series. Who you are loving is a question that must remain at the heart of all that we do. Jesus, in John's Gospel, said this, If you love me, keep my commands. And then John, in his first letter, said, If anyone obeys his word, love of God is truly made complete in them. You see that? It goes both ways. Brothers and sisters, love is where the practices start, and love is where they end. Let's pray. Holy Father, as we sit on this word together today, may you leave on our hearts an impression of the things you want us to take, the things we want to hear you saying to us today. We thank you, Father, for this series and for all the promise and opportunity it holds for each of us, wherever we might be, in our walk with you. We ask, Lord, that this might be such a great opportunity for us to grasp hold of that space to keep company with you, that space that we desperately, we desperately need, but yet so often fail to find the time for. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you might enable us to be transformed into the image of your son, that we might be with him, that we might be like him, and that we might be for his mission. These things we pray in your son's precious name. Amen.